Okay, Wyatt, you can hear that? Well, look, it's uh, terrific to be with you again. This is uh, my last time um, and uh, in this series, and I've enjoyed it very much. I hope you've found 1 Corinthians uh, 1 to 3, which we've looked at so far, stimulating, and not just stimulating, but challenging uh, for you in understanding how you ought to be in the world, but not of the world. I guess uh, that's a catchphrase. It's not actually in the Bible. I spent an afternoon one time reading through John's Gospel and the various other places to try and find that phrase. It's not in the Bible, but it captures something important about our relationship with the world and that we're in the world and Jesus doesn't take us out of it but we're not to be of the world and I guess it's the second half of that that we've really been majoring on as we've looked at this theme of cross-culture cross-culture um, we've seen the Corinthians have been a bit like sponges you may have experienced this yourself when one of those dismaying moments when you catch yourself sounding or acting just like your friends or even worse, just like your parents Okay, so I've, I've done this. I've spoken to my children in ways that could have been a, an audio tape of how my father's spoken to me, and you say it, and then your memory clicks in a gear and you hear it from 20 years ago and think, I swore I would never do that. I was going to be better, but I'm the same. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know whether this is true in a you or not, but the, the double yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But not, not, not one year, not three years, and four years is way right out, you know. But the double yeah, yeah is a bit of a thing at the moment, it seems to me. And, um, you know, that's kind of, we just pick that up from each other and we just absorb it. It's just, it's just a bit of a sponge-like activity that we're engaged in. Now, that's a trivial example of a much more profound reality, which, as I say, is this capacity of us to be sponges, to soak up the attitudes and actions and gestures and values of the context around us. What you might call the social construction of reality. We get our sense of what's real and how we respond to what's real by what's happening in the society around us. Well, the Corinthians had socially constructed their reality in a huge way. And we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks, taking the values of cosmopolitan Corinth almost without distinction, without discrimination, and applying it to their lives as the people of God. And so Paul goes to work on them. In this first uh, letter of his to them, he goes to work on them. For in doing that, he says, they are emptying the cross of Christ. Nothing less profound than that is at stake. They are emptying the cross of Christ. Uh, the section that we're going to look at this afternoon, which runs from chapter 3 and verse 18 to chapter 4 and verse 5, is the climax of the passage so far. It picks up the three issues that have dominated and ties them together and you can see that in the diagram on the outlines. A little more extensive than last week. See, their, their basic first problem is that they are enthralled by what he calls the wisdom of this age. In other words, they socially construct reality and he's dealt at length with the wisdom of the world and compared it to the wisdom of God in the cross in the second half of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Secondly, on the basis of that wisdom, they're judging people, especially their teachers, one to be better than another. My guru is better than your guru. And he's spoken about judgment and, and of ministers and all people in the second half of chapter 3. And then third, as a consequence of that judgment, they're boasting in their leaders. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. So what he does is in these couple of paragraphs, he pulls these three issues together and tells the Corinthians exactly what they should do about them. Until now, he's actually only been teaching about the underlying issues. Now Paul speaks in the imperative tense. 
For those of you that do Latin or Greek, you'll know you still have some semblance of knowledge of grammar. Uh, imperative tense means a command. And until now, there's been no commands. It's just been instruction. Now he says, do this. And he says three things. With regard to wisdom, he says, become fools. With regard to judging, he says, don't judge. And on boasting, he says, don't boast. Okay, see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Now this is uh, the same point that he made in chapter 1. It's not the biblical refuge for the desperate student as we saw then. In fact, when it comes to getting your computer fixed or your drains unblocked, those parts of reality which are God's gift to us, you want someone who precisely is wise in this age. But of course, what Paul is dealing here with is anti-cross wisdom, that empty display as we looked at it, and those false values of the culture around us that actually oppose the profound display and true values of the cross of Christ. Empty display and false values. We looked at it a bit last week. Here's some more thoughts I had. Might is right. It's only wrong if you get caught, especially when it comes to cheating on your tax. Look after number one because no one else will. The only serious way to celebrate something is to get drunk. Big and bold is beautiful. Impressive is impressive. The latest is the greatest. Being boring is the most heinous crime. You're only as good as you are gifted. Achieving your potential is the number one priority. They are cross-emptying values, cross-opposing values of our world. And the Corinthians had drunk deep to the point where they regarded themselves as wise according to the standards of their age and they saw it as a virtue for crying out loud. Their self-perception was that they were wise. But Paul says to them, your self-perception is self-deception. And so he says, become fools. In other words, give it up. Change your minds, abandon those false presuppositions and become fools. Fools, that is, according to this age and adopt the culture of the cross and then you really will become wise. The culture of the cross which says that weakness is power. That beauty is a function of internal devotion to God. That impressive is not necessarily impressive. That faithlessness is the greatest crime. That giftedness is a very minor matter indeed. And that without love, all the giftedness in the world, so that you can understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all powers and even give your body over to be burned, well, without love, it's a waste of time, you're a nothing. That only God is something, it's God who gives the growth and the leaders are not anybody. And the self-abandonment is the number one priority. They're the values of this cross, aren't they? Become that kind of fool, says the Apostle. And the reason, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Again, the Apostle quotes the Old Testament, just like in chapter 1, to demonstrate that God's consistent purpose has been to overthrow the human arrogance which stands against him. That's contrary to him. This time from Job chapter 5 and Psalm 94, again, stinging indictments of proud human self-assertion. And God is against it. And in the cross, he's made it stupid. 
And so it's just incompatible. It's just incompatible with being a Christian to be wise in this age. Do get that, won't you? The problem with this, of course, is it's always easy to see in other people. It's always easy to sort of poke holes to, to, to get the specks out of other people's eyes than just kind of wield the log in your own and do something about that. I want to give you a test as to whether you might have adopted unknowingly, just like a sponge, unconsciously, the values of the world around you. And it's this. If you find yourself making the same kinds of judgments, the same kinds of assessments as non-Christians, and with the same kinds of reasoning, especially in regard to other Christians, and when you won't take responsibility for those judgments and do something about them, but remain aloof and comfortably distant, then I think you want to take a really long, hard look at yourself. If you catch yourself saying the same kinds of things by way of criticism and judgment for the same kinds of reasons, from the same sort of stance as non-Christian people, you want to really worry about what kind of values you're operating out of. I've recently been dealing with another Christian leader with whom I have differences, and what's most troubling is the fact that the only way that she can find to express her point of view and her differences with me is an exact echo of the world's criticism of biblically-based Christian faith. So she accuses me. I could have read this in the Sydney Morning Herald for crying out loud. She just accuses me of being narrow and of being fundamentalist, of only trying to grow my own show, and so on. It sets off alarm bells when you hear someone who's supposed to be a Christian brother or sister talking just like the world. And maybe that's because she's become just a little too wise and she needs to become a fool in order really to become wise. Watch out for yourself. Take heed to yourself that you don't sound like the world in your judgments and your assessments. Um, Of course, that's secondly exactly what the Corinthians were doing on the basis of their so-called wisdom. And so Paul says to them in chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Now, this is uh, not a relativist's proof text. You know, the kind of person who never allows an assessment of a situation, uh, especially a negative assessment, on the basis that that's judging And so it kind of pounces on you with a wonderful judgmental self-righteousness. You mustn't judge people. No, Paul actually does all sorts of judging. He calls the Corinthians infants. And in the next chapter, he actually tells them to judge people. Chapter 5, check it out. He's not confused. He explains himself in verses 1 to 4. Think of us in this way, chapter 4, verse 1 to 4, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it's required of servants that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, literally by any human day. I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, you want to make sure you get this paragraph very deeply into your brain. It is the Lord who judges me. And it's the Lord who judges me, says Paul, because of who he is. He is a servant of Christ, a steward of God's mysteries. That is, he's a person under orders. The word the apostle uses here is a remarkable one, actually. For servant, it means literally an under rower. Uh, Now, everyone in Corinth understood what that meant. Uh, Corinth was where the war galleys in the Roman Empire uh, used to cross the isthmus. That's a great word, I-S-T-H-M-U-S. Say it fast five times. Isthmus. 
and it's a spit of land between two water stretches. And what they do is instead of going around it because it was dangerous, they'd come to one side, they'd pick it up, they'd cart it over, and they'd put it down and sail on. Okay? Between the Ionian and the Aegean Sea, in case you know where those places are. And the Corinthians knew that the lower deck of a war galley was made of a single row of benches on both sides of the ship where the rowers sat. And there was a little deck raised up above them all so that each rower could see the guy standing on that deck, the captain of the ship. And with the rower's task, the row according to what he said. Okay, he says, go, they go. He says, stop, they stop. He says, turn left, the people on the other side stop and the row extra hard and all that kind of deal. Their business was to obey his orders. They were under rowers. That's who he says he is. He's an under rower. As a teacher, as a preacher, as a minister of the word of God within the congregation of the church, he's an under rower. And that means that it is to the one who is his master that he is accountable. It's that one who has the right to decide whether or not he's been faithful and not anyone else. Notice that his task is to be faithful, not successful. He's to be faithful. It doesn't say, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found extremely successful. No, it's that they be found trustworthy, faithful. This is crucial that you get this when you understand that you're in the business of the gospel. Your task is to be faithful, not successful. That, that can be the only way it can be. I mean, that must be the only way it can be if it's God who gives the growth, isn't it? You can't be successful if it's God who gives the growth because it's not you who's giving the growth. It's not you who creates the success. You can't be successful. So stop trying. What you can be is faithful. Now the shape of faithfulness is quite different from what you might have expected. You see what faithfulness to the cross meant from the Apostle Paul? A little later on in the chapter, he's, he sort of loses his cool a little bit in talking to the Corinthians. He's getting a bit exasperated with them. And in caustic and sarcastic tones, he ridicules the, the Corinthians' sort of superior attitude to himself. Listen to this, chapter 4, verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced to death. Then there's ministry according to the pattern of the cross. Death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we are hungry and thirsty, we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we grow weary from the work of our own hands. He wouldn't let them give him money. He insisted on working with his own hands as a maker of uh, tents. When reviled, we bless. See, that's the cross. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We've become like the rubbish of the world, or the, literally the scum of the earth. That's where that phrase comes from. 1 Corinthians 4, the scum of the earth. It's a Christian phrase. We Christians love calling ourselves scum of the earth. That's what we are when we're uh, forwards and shaped in the culture of the cross. The dregs of all thing, things to this very day. That's faithfulness for the apostle. And so he says, it's a very small matter that they should judge him or any human court. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that? It's a very small matter to you that others should judge you. Not because you're some kind of egomaniac, but because ground deep into your soul is the reality that you play, your life is a symphony played to an audience of one. 
The only eyes you care about seeing you are the eyes of the Lord. Notice, he doesn't even judge himself. That's not his prerogative. Not that he says he's aware of anything against himself, but it's not that which thereby quits him. Now, just I want you to pause on this for a moment and make sure we slow down and get it. This is a whole positive and optimistic way of living the Christian life that I suspect sounds quite foreign to us. He gets it all wrong, doesn't he? What the apostle should say is, I'm completely aware of everything against myself and am thereby condemned in my conscience and I keep whipping myself, but happily the cross sort of takes it all away and Jesus stands in front of me so God won't blot me out. But the Bible has kind of that annoying habit of not quite saying what we might expect it to say. He has what you might call a robust, relativised conscience. It's robust, Paul's conscience. Robust because he's able to say that he walks the walk. He really does. Not that I'm aware of anything against myself. But it's not only a robust conscience, it's a relativised conscience. Because he says conscience is not king. Conscience is not the be-all and end-all. Jesus is. The Lord is. I don't live to satisfy others and avoid their criticism of me. I don't even live to satisfy myself and my own and avoid my own self-criticism. I live to satisfy Christ. Do, do you feel the freedom? I mean, get a hold of this. Do you feel the freedom that comes from the fact that because of the cross, it is in Christ that you are judged. And so you're freed from the judgment of others or even yourself. It's the Lord who judges him. It's the Lord who judges you. No one else can take that role. And therefore any other judgment, be it from others or be it even from yourself, is just premature. It's not their place, it's not your place. If it's before the Lord returns. See, this says something kind of uh, to you and about you, doesn't it? To you it says, don't you dare, don't you dare take into your own hands what only God's authority, what is only God's authority to stand over against someone as judge. Don't you dare do that, especially if it's based on anti-cross values, as the Corinthians were doing. At the same time, this is about you. That is, it is the Lord and only the Lord who judges you. And so it can be a very small matter to you that any human court or even yourself should condemn you. They think, well, thanks for nothing. That's kind of out of the fat and into the fire, isn't it? Great. I'm not judged by others. I'm not even judged by myself. I'm judged by the Lord. Especially when you see the scope of his judgment. Verse 5, who, the Lord, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You think, I'd rather someone else judge me actually because at least they can't see the things now hidden in darkness and the purposes of my heart. And so how does Paul see it? He says, then each one will receive condemnation from God. Did you notice that's not what he says? He doesn't say that, does he? You'd think that's what he should say. That's how we tend to think, isn't it? If God were to examine me on that basis, what would be the outcome? If he were to expose, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart of you now, what could there be other than condemnation? And yet that's not what the Apostle says. 
He gets his M's and his D's and his N's round the wrong way. He says, then each one will receive commendation from God. Notice what he says, it's not just himself, it's each one. This is, this is available for you. Each one. Massively positive view of the Christian life, isn't it? Even for the Corinthians, as you live your life before Christ as your judge, not before others, not even before yourself. You see, the culture of the cross takes up a position alongside people so that where assessments and evaluations are made, they are done as a fellow traveller, walking alongside, not standing over a person in judgment, which is nothing less than usurping the role of the Lord. We have a role, it's of encouragement and rebuke, but it's alongside. We have no right to judge and dismiss and to write off and to separate and distance ourselves. Hear the freedom of the culture of the cross, which lets God be God and refuses to usurp. No one can judge me, not even me. You see again what this will do to the sort of I find it hard to forgive myself kind of Christianity. I understand what's being said there, but it's just not your place to forgive yourself. That's not up to you. You you don't have the right. It's not for you to do. It's the Lord who judges you. So let him do it. You see how this frees you up in relation to yourself and to other people. You don't need to fear judgments. You don't need to fear failure. And so you can reach out to people in love, unselfconsciously, without self-protection. Seems to me when you really get a hold of this, you become kind of the Teflon queen, the Teflon king. All the sort of crap that people pour on you, it just it just slides off. You know, whoosh, off it goes. And you can just get out there and do what you do in the sight of the Lord. It's the Lord who judges me. And you can live for that. Well, to those who are wise, he says, become fools. To those who on the basis of this so-called wisdom are judging, he says, don't judge. Finally, to those whose judgments are based on anti-cross wisdom and it leads them to boast in their leaders, he says, don't boast. Chapter 3, verse 21. So, let no one boast about human leaders. As we've seen, they see some of their leaders as impressive and attach themselves to them, designated themselves as Paul's. Although you kind of get the feeling that there weren't too many in this gang. You know what I mean? They were kind of uh, more impressed by Apollos and, and this sort of is a little hopeful on Paul's part you know that there are some that say I'm Paul's at least but uh, you know not too many in a wonderful move in a wonderful move which actually advances the argument Paul says their self-designation I'm Paul's I'm Apollos their self-designation is nothing short of self-denigration that's not what they were made for he says boasting is prostitution of the human soul they were made for God and so to say that they are Paul's or that they are Apollos's is to sell themselves short. Verse 21b, you see, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you. Do you get the point? I mean, just hear that. That's, that's not an answer that, that I, you know... I would have written, why not boast in human leaders? Well, because everything is yours. You know, I'd, I'd be tempted to go the other way and say, well, because, you know, it doesn't matter. But no, he says, because everything is yours. Uh, this is not a communist manifesto, kind of common ownership of property. 
Although I was tempted when I saw Murray Smith's Palm Pilot fold-out portable keyboard to make this point to him. All things are mine, so hand it over. <laughs> now, the, the, the point is that in seeing Apollos as impressive and powerful and uh, in identifying yourself with him, they've forgotten the most important thing, that, that Christ is far more impressive. Though, of course, it's the impressiveness of the cross. Christ, so much more impressive than Apollos and Paul and the world and life and death and present and future, all these things belong to Christ. He's Lord of them all. And because we belong to Christ, then those things belong to us as well. None of them can harm us. None of them stand over against us. If, you, if Apollos is sort of, you know, doesn't like you much, that's okay. You don't need to sort of wangle your way into his good books. None of them need intimidate us or oppress us, any of these things. We need make no compromises for their sake because they all belong to us, because they belong to Christ. Martin Luther put it this way. There's a great quote from that great little book called Freedom of a Christian, which you ought to read. Every Christian, he says, is by faith so exalted above all things that by virtue of a spiritual power he is Lord of all things without exception, so that nothing can do him any harm. As a matter of fact, all things are made subject to him and are compelled to serve him in obtaining salvation. The power of which we speak, he goes on and says, he's not talking in an earthly sense, like kings and princes and that sort of thing. He says, the power of which we speak is spiritual. It rules in the midst of enemies and is powerful in the midst of oppression. This is a splendid privilege and hard to attain, a truly omnipotent power, a spiritual dominion in which there is nothing so good and nothing so evil but that it shall work together for good for me, if only I will believe. You see the point, when you're a kid of the king, when you're a kid of the king, everything is yours. That's why the sentence goes on, verse 23, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. All things are yours because you are Christ's. But notice that's not the end. Christ, he says, belongs to God. Even Christ, the Lord of all, the Lord of Paul and Apollos and life and death and present and future, even Christ belongs to God. Or, or the way to, I think what's underneath that is the way of Christ's lordship, his MO, is of humble submission to his Father. And so the Corinthians, even as possessors of all things, will be possessors like Christ is a possessor, in submission to God. You see what happens here? Paul kind of takes the world away in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapters 1 to 4, doesn't he? He takes the world away and says, watch out for the world. It's, it's anti the cross. If you, if you live according to the power of the values and culture of the world, you'll empty the cross. He takes it away in order to give it back. In order to give it back, all things are yours. But now to be received in humility rather than grabbed in desperate pride and imitation. All things are yours and you can take your place in the world without fear because in Christ, the world is yours. Paul overthrows the wisdom of the world which is world-denying only to give it back in Christ which is God-glorifying. Well, we need to not be sponges. We need to be hoses. We need to be hoses. And uh, being a sponge is something I'm all too aware of, I guess. Uh, I see it in myself, I see it in others. That vortex, particularly of judging other Christians, 
on the basis of values and principles more informed by the culture around us than by the cross. And so puffing ourselves up and putting others down in my own estimation. And I want to ask you again, have you, have you, do you see this in yourself? Have you caught yourself playing the part of a sponge, soaking up the values of the world, rather than being a hose, injecting the foolishness of the cross into a situation or a relationship? Have you caught yourself criticising Christians and their ministry because they were boring or because they weren't new or because they didn't cut it against more impressive people as though novelty and titillation and excitement were genuine values? Have you found yourself doing that? The word of God to you this afternoon is that you need to become a fool if you want truly to be wise, to adopt the culture of the cross which simply refuses to soak like a sponge. Of course, if you do this, you know what people will call you, your colleagues and your family, your fellow students, all those who are wise in this age. They'll call you a fool. They'll treat you like a fool. They'll dismiss you as a fool. And you'll be tempted strongly to become wise again in their eyes. And when that happens, remember that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He does. That they are futile. And he's made the wisdom of the world foolishness in reality. And on the basis of being a fool, will you stop being proud? Will you be humbled by the cross? Stripped of any boast or standing before God other than Christ, so that your boast will only be in him. And so the word of God is to stop judging, to stop usurping a role that's not yours, standing over people or even over yourself in judgment but rather as a fellow traveller in the shadow of the cross. Will you let Christ fill your vision? Christ and him crucified, boasting only in him, recognising that in him you have everything, but that outside of him you have nothing at all. Let's close our time together by praying. Lord Jesus Christ, it's, we praise in our hearts that we exalt you as our Lord and Judge. Our crucified one who's made foolish the wisdom of this world and who's, who's uh, blazed the trail of self-sacrifice and service and love and we pray that you would work in our hearts so that our only boast in our lip, on our lips and in our lives would be in you. We pray for your own great glory. Amen.